Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 5th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, with my annual and now daily request to all our listeners to go to commentary.org slash donate and consider making commentary a recipient of your annual giving. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We produce Commentary Magazine, the commentary.org website, and this daily podcast, and we cannot do it alone. We need your help. We need your sponsorship. We need your generosity, your eliminary generosity, uh, to keep bringing you this podcast and the other work that we do. Uh, I would be very grateful if you would consider us in that giving at commentary.org slash donate. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So just as we and everybody else were talking about whether Donald Trump's uh, uh, past due date had arrived as a result of the elections and a result of uh, Trump fatigue and all of that. Um, the uh, former president in the wake of revelations about the efforts at Twitter to suppress the New York Post's story about Hunter Biden's weirdly abandoned laptop in a Delaware computer repair store uh, and the revelations on it um, that uh, the Twitter files released and described by a radical journalist, Matt Taibbi, uh, had led Trump to go on his true social website and say, what, Noah? You don't need to do an imitation. No, we'll now. I wasn't on. planning on it. Oh, it would, I would enjoy it because you were you were a very accomplished uh, high school <laughs> high school and college actor. But if you but you could just uh, read my it. skills have atrophied some, so I'm oh, gonna leave I'm the so audience sad. Leave that imagination <laughs> to the audience's imagination. So the, the president we keep calling it tweets. They're not tweets. What do you call a post on Truth Social? Truths. They're called truths. truths. Oh, really? Okay. His, they're his truths. His truth. Okay, so Donald Trump's truth is the following. So he begins with the massive with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democratic Party. Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner or do you have a new election? Good question. He continues, a massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. He continued, our great founder, in quotes, did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. There is a universe of mystery in this in this comment. Who is our founder? The one individual he, founder. I think he was channeling George Washington there, Noah. Like perhaps, clearly he's, perhaps, he's having a <laughs> perhaps, but there were others, as far as I recall, uh, from my the my American education that the, our former president didn't get, I guess. 
Um, <laughs> the massive fraud that he alleges we should get into in these Twitter documents. Um, it is a, in a stretch to say the least to suggest that the manipulation of, of this particular news story and during the election cycle justifies any remedy whatsoever, let alone calling it a massive widespread fraud and deception. Um, it serves, you know, the practical purpose of this is to serve as yet another opportunity for the press to make this weekend an election or this weekend a news cycle entirely about Trump. Who's denouncing him? Who's not denouncing him? Um, and this is probably what he gets out of it. He's not getting a new election. He's not going to be installed in the presidency. What does he get out of this? What's the personal satisfaction? It's just that everybody gets to talk about what a spectacle he's making of himself, right? Well, he had to up the ante. Um, you know, uh, there's there's very little that he could say that you wouldn't expect him to say. He found a little room to say something that you wouldn't quite expect. It's not. It doesn't. It's hardly shocking coming from him. But I don't know that he said before. Eh, let's get rid of the Constitution. Well, and strategically, not a great idea for someone who's facing indictment for like violations of far more minor rules than suggesting the suspension of the Constitution. I mean, that's the that's the language of martial law, right? You suspend the Constitution, you bring in troops. That that's what people say when they're staging a real coup. So if you're defending yourself against charges that you were planning a coup before, probably not a great idea to call for the end. It of is. The it's it's just such a tired game to perform exegesis on these statements that don't that have all the the value is it in it is it face value. You don't really right. need to delve into it to understand what he's trying to say. He's just trying to get himself into this news cycle that dominated social media, which is, I think, where he lives. I don't know wh- how Truth Social works, but it, I think it's just an extension of Twitter, and the only way I come across it is on Twitter. So I think it's just another Twitter that probably cross-populates. So everything we see on Twitter is probably what he sees on Truth Social to some degree in, like, some funhouse mirror reflection of it. I, I, I Oddly enough, I think you guys are under... Um... I wouldn't say underestimating, but you are um, undervaluing or uh, under uh, under under something uh, the meaning of this tweet. Um, I think this is the crossing of a Rubicon. I don't think that this is just another tired Trump effort to get into the news cycle. He is explicitly now saying that the structure and order of the United States needs to be overthrown so that he can be reinstalled because the will of the people in some Rousseauvian sense was uh, rejected by a conspiracy so massive that it took a couple of forms, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, I, I don't think this is an ordinary Trump upping the ante or that it's, you know, yeah, he probably shouldn't have done that because you know, there's going to be talk of there's talk of indicting him on the grounds that he was conspiring to overthrow the Constitution and use extra legal means to to interfere with the proper uh, passage of power after a an election. Um, remember the thing about this election that is so complicated is, uh. We have a system that is practically designed to make it impossible for there to be any question about the legitimacy of elections. We have 50 different states. We have we have uh, 150. I can't remember how many electors per state, but I mean, I, I can't remember what the electoral. I mean, the electoral count is obviously 538. 
We have 538 different electors. We have state results. We have some states that apportion electors all as winner take all. And then we have a couple of states where the electors are apportioned by congressional district. And we have multiple repeated efforts to certify the results. In every state in the country, the results were certified. In every state of the country, the results were certified. There is this two-month process of certification at the state level, the acceptance of the electors, the electors' ballots going to Congress on the 6th of January to be formally accepted by the vice president. It is an unbelievably detailed process, the purpose of which is to make it impossible for anybody to steal an election. So according to him, me, new means have been have, were used to steal an election. See, it's right. funny to me that that's your your analysis that I share. Obviously, your your faith in the in the firm foundations of the Constitution and these overlapping layers, and that to me suggests that he, this is a low stakes debate because he's mounting such a flap, flaccid, limp wristed assault on these very firm foundations. How many? How many people, who has to get up in arms about it? How many people in the United States believe what he says? If it were three hundred thousand out of three hundred and thirty million. I wouldn't care. It's probably sixty million. Okay, but even, even if they believe it, what what action could be taken to overthrow the constitution? This is where it's like he's saying all this rhetorical right. bloviating. What could who could who could decree that? Could Kevin McCarthy stand up when he's sworn in as Speaker of the House and say, "I I hereby suspend the constitution"? That's the thing. Is like he's not. I mean, I'm kind of more on Noah's side of this argument because I think he doesn't think through. He's he's stating something that he's kind of wish casting what he would like to see happen because he feels so aggrieved by what how he was treated. But that doesn't mean there's any mechanism for actually right. achieving that I, I, or that even people who not... want to hear him bloviate would actually do something about it and that's... i was just thinking about the politicians yeah. who are being asked to get on the record about it what are they supposed to say well that's ridiculous. i mean they should say obviously that's ridiculous this is a not well, person we know yeah. we in a perfect world they would have more more authority or, or more you know courage of their convictions they don't that's not the world we live in but also this is such a low stakes debate that why should they it's the not the tea partiers. Where are all our tea partiers who used to sit yeah, around and read the constitution for fun? Yeah, like okay, get okay. those guys on him. <laughs> it's not a low stakes debate for the former president of the United States and the all but titular head, though that maybe you know, of of the of one of the two parties in the United States to explicitly come out and say that the constitution needs to be destroyed. That is not nothing. You can't. No, it's terrible. That You're right. Nothing. No, no, no. It's no, not but nothing. It is, it's, it's... You know, it is. It is the. Uh, it is not the opening of the Overton window or the moving of the Overton window. It is taking a brick and smashing through the Overton window. What's said cannot be unsaid. God, I is... Okay, go ahead, Abe. Sorry. Well, I, I, I think we're we're risking um, uh, 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 overinterpreting um the degree to which he's serious like he's never he never means anything you know uh it was an outrage when he said russia if you're listening uh look into hillary's emails if he meant it it would be it would have been an outrage um i wouldn't be remotely shocked if it, he gets confronted about this somewhere down the line and and tries to wriggle out of it and says i said something like this would allow for the suspending of the Constitution. I know the fake news media tells you I called for the ending of the Constitution. Um, I, I, I just think it's I don't I, I, I'm, I'm still very much in the he needed to get into the news cycle camp. 
But here's where John is right. And actually, and I hate when the media does this, but in this particular case, it would be very useful for Republicans to answer this question. They should ask leading Republicans right now, what do you think of what this guy just said? And they should go on the record going, this is insane. This is unacceptable. This is not what our party stands for. We stand for the upholding the Constitution. They need to do that is a point where I think they do need to speak out and respond. Because as you say, John, he's still the head of a a large chunk of the Republican Party, even as an ex-president. This is an opportunity for Republicans to stand up for what they believe. And I fear far too few of them will do that. Well, we already have we already have an example of this. So a guy I've never heard of, I have to admit, who is actually is now the chairman of the moderate caucus in the Republican House, Dave Joyce of Ohio, was on with George Stephanopoulos on ABC yesterday morning. The Republican governance group chair asked about this and he said uh, something like he says a lot of crazy stuff. Um, well, you know, he says a lot of things. I can't really be chasing every one of those crazy statements that come from any of these candidates. He says a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that it's ever going to happen. So you got to separate fact from fantasy. And fantasy is that we're going to suspend the Constitution and go backwards. We're moving forward. Okay, so this is like the head of the implicitly anti-Trump governance caucus who is too chicken shit to say that the ex-president saying that the Constitution needs to be suspended so that I can be installed as president goes beyond anything acceptable in the United States. I do not think that you can expect politicians to be brave. I don't. Like, I don't think you can expect anybody to be brave. This is a very important thing when people say you need to be brave. Bravery is an exceptional condition. That's one of the definitions of it. It is something that happens unexpectedly by people who do things that are, you know, put them at at risk or in danger and they do it for a higher purpose. And it's exceptional nature is what makes bravery a remarkable thing. So to expect Congressman Joyce or whoever to be brave in facing down the risk or the trouble from Trump. Well, how about being like uh, self-protective and cowardly? And one way to be self-protective and cowardly is to say, this has to stop. I'm going to take the lead here. This has to stop because your party is never going to win another election with this crap coming out of the mouth of its leader if he remains its leader. And I don't know why you want to serve in the House of Representatives as a representative of this party if the person who is going to be the president, if the person you fantasize might be the president in 2025, is going to come in having said that his belief is that the Constitution should have been overthrown at some point to make him president. And the other thing is, you're going to be in the minority forever. You're going to be in the minority forever, because if this is what he says in December of 2022, and we're getting to November of 2024, you think, does anybody think that this guy can actually be elected president? I'm not saying, okay, it's like 2016. I didn't think he'd be elected president then. You can't talk this way. We just saw an election in which ordinary suburban Republicans fled to the Democratic Party because they were horrified by the Trumpification of the Republican Party. There is no question that that happened. And now he's getting worse and worse and worse. There's so something... self, self-protection should be leading these people to try to run him out of town on a rail. There's something tactically to the idea that 
at this point, you, if you're someone like this congressman, you do better to be dismissive of Trump than combative with him, though. Um, I think if you if you get into it with him, you bring him fully right back into uh, 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 right back on the main stage um, and you you risk taking him seriously as a contender in a way that you shouldn't right now. I think he's because he's weak and because he's because you can do what if you do it right the way DeSantis did, you can. You can refer to him as noise, um, which is which I mean, is this is noise. I don't know if I would yeah. respond to it any differently. That's what I'm saying. And I, I don't have any, you know, a, a love for this character and the, the nonsense that he says. But there's so much more to ruminate on when he says something of substance than let's just get rid of the Constitution. I would hand wave that off as ridiculous and move on because it is. It's not. It's really not. He was president of the United States. He's not some guy on a talk show. He's not Janine Pirro, whom I saw in a hotel lobby on, uh, you know, Fox and Friends Sunday yesterday, talking about how, you know, we needed to prosecute media companies because they're violating the First Amendment by not publishing things that she wants published. Janine. Piro can blather nonsense and crap all she wants. She's some former DA from Westchester County who was a friend of Trump's and is like a deranged moron who's made fun of on SNL. Like, that's one thing. He was the president of the United States. So is the fear that is capacity to radicalize? Because, yes. I mean, obviously, yeah. Yes, and um, not just the capacity to But to a certain to degree, I would regard that as, as an approximation. And there is no symmetry here. As I've said before, there is asymmetry here. But I would, if there's an approximation on the other side of the, the aisle, I would say that you have similar capacity to radicalize in the much more thought out, thorough uh, efforts to uh, create some sort of a movement to abolish the U.S. Senate. Now, equally unconstitutional provision almost impossible to do unless you eliminate the language in article five which itself would be almost impossible and otherwise you just can't do it because you can't deprive states of their representation in the upper chamber but it's it exists only as an organizing principle as a radicalizing organizing principle and in that there's some seriousness to it i wouldn't ignore that per se but i also wouldn't take it like an assault on the foundations of the constitution because it's just so outlandish but it's not outlandish. It would have been outlandish 10 years ago to imagine that the form, a former president of the United States and the, you know, person who is going to run and is, you know, still sort of ahead in the polls running in 2024 was going to say that the Constitution needed to be overthrown and he needed to be installed as president. Like that, this is how these things happen. Does it delegitimize? Do, do you have a movement in the Democratic Party like the Republican Party? No, not yet. Could you have one in 2032? Yes. That's how this works. You know, Obama does something extra constitutional in in using executive authority to do something that was legislative. And then every president after him is now going to do that because he opened the window. Nobody did it before. No one would ever have dared to try it before. Then you dare to try it. And you know what? The sun rises the next morning and everybody goes to work and people, you know, live their lives. And suddenly that which is unthinkable becomes thinkable. And something like this that causes everybody to like, you know, rend their garments and get the smelling salts out 
can become something that is said, and by the way, is being said implicitly by by the 1619 Project people. I mean, in, in, implicitly, and in, by by people who believe that you know we should have I don't know, uh, Lanny Guineer style, you know, having explicit quotas for who's in the Senate and the House and stuff like that. I mean, well, maybe maybe the answer to this dilemma because I think actually this is a case where we're all a little right and and but we're still disagreeing on some of it. Maybe we should all, and this includes you know the country as well. We should treat Trump not just as an ex president, but as what he is currently, which is a candidate for office. Right, he's announced his his run for the presidency in 2024. Let's treat him like a, we would treat any candidate from any party who says crazy crap and you know is going to be uh, throwing that in front of the American people and saying this is what I believe. Vote me in because right now he's a loser, ex president. Right, he lost. He lost after one term. Um, he's uh, he's facing a, a myriad number of you know uh, legal matters that that haven't been sorted out. But he's announced his run anyway. Okay, so he's a candidate for office. Let's treat him like that. That does require response to what he said, but not I don't think I don't think we want to elevate it too much. Right. He's a loser ex-president who wants to win again. So he's saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And let's let the people judge when he with his run, if it ever actually comes to fruition, um, whether that's what they want. And I I don't believe that telling people that he's, you know, the the most he's radical in many ways. We've known this, but we but there's a balance between elevating his crazy and treating him like what he should be treated as, which is someone who still has to get through a process to get to the point where he could ever suspend the constitution. And I think him saying this is actually a terrible sentence though. That's no, I know, no, I know. But like what, where does our, what, what does our system offer us for someone like him? He's always been that outlier that our system has had difficulty processing and we're still having that challenge. I'm not saying it's not a challenge, but I, but the solution is, is in some ways right in front of us in terms of the political process, the political process will sort this out with him. I really do believe that. I don't think people do not like him. They don't, they punished everyone he endorsed in the last election we're about to lose the republicans are about to lose georgia again tomorrow this is the direction we're heading so i, I think don't think we want to fall back into the you know crazed anti-trump stuff into the look I, I agree entirely and i think the thing that we had sort of come around to saying when we were discussing how there this is now almost eight years uh for the fir- first time in almost eight years without this sort of overarching singular singular uh news item namely trump um that we 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 said, look, um, this is the first time that no one is feeding the hunger for apocalyptic news. Um, and suddenly we if we can we can decide that, oh, here we it's, it's the apocalypse again. And I really think we can slip out of that. I don't think we have to go there with this. It is not that Joyce is afraid of Trump, per se. He is afraid of Trump's forces. Right. He's afraid that if he were to come out that in his district in Ohio, somebody would run against him and beat him in a primary. So that's not Trump. Exactly. This is the Republican Party terrified of the id, the monster from the id from Forbidden Planet that Trump unleashed somehow. Okay, but they all just lost. A lot of them just lost. A lot of those people that the fear is what gives no, it the power, the candidates, right? Like, <laughs> the candidates lost. The voters are still there. And you may think that Trump can be starved of oxygen. 
but those people will not be starved of oxygen. Now, let's take a break, and then we'll talk about Matt Taibbi and the Twitter files. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. So my view is that the that Trump's troops cannot be deprived of oxygen in this way because of uh, what just happened this weekend with the release uh, by Elon Musk of the private files at Twitter that explained how they suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story. And the reason I say this is that uh, the presumption is that this story came out and Twitter and Facebook and others uh, colluded essentially with the Democratic Party to suppress news of the story, which was, I think, three weeks before the election to, you know, win the election for Biden. Now, the presumption has now, we've now jumped from there was this suppression of a news story using a patently preposterous idea that the laptop had somehow been created magically by the Russians and filled with thousands of pictures of Hunter Biden naked uh, and other stuff like what, you know, like this, we now know Russians can't even drive a tank without getting caught in the mud. So I think we should now understand that our presumption that they are, you know, geniuses at manufacturing stuff on the internet should be qualified. But the Russians manufactured this laptop, therefore it was disinformation. 51 intelligence officers said it was disinformation. And they suppressed the story from a major American news outlet, which I ha- happen to have, you know, uh, worked for, written for, for almost 30 years. What? But now there's the leap, which is the fact that the press didn't jump on the laptop story, won the election for Biden. You can't run rerun an election. You don't know what would have happened. That's preposterous. It is preposterous. This was a story about Hunter Biden. There is no smoking gun on the laptop that says, my father, when he was vice president of the United States, introduced me to crooks in Ukraine and China and gave me money, and then I gave it to him. There is no such email. There is no such document on that laptop. Were it, were it to have been there, the New York Post would have found it back in the day, and that would have been something that would have been unsuppressible. That And it's not there now because now others have examined the laptop. We do not have a smoking gun that says Hunter Biden was a Joe Biden op. So it's an imp- what's outrageous about what happened here is that it's a perfectly legitimate news story that the son of the president, the son of a of a former leading American official, was trading on his father's name to get work because people outside the United States believe what is actually not true inside the United States, which is that you know po- political families are all crime families, and that they and that they purloin, they do all this together. But everyone in Trump world now believes this as an axiom. 
had the Hunter Biden laptop story been out and no one had suppressed it and everybody, other media organizations would have jumped on it, Trump would have been reelected president. So uh, that's why you can't, and there are going to be 30, 40, 50 million people who believe this in the United States. Maybe not 50 million. Trump got 74 million votes. So let's say it's half of them that'll believe it. So it's 37 million people are going to believe this. You think that's not, you think we're not in a new world in well, which. If you think you re- they really believe it. 30 million people really believe that the Constitution needs to be suspended because the laptop would have overturned the election. Are you saying that's not true? What I, I, just I said? really doubt that. Yeah, I really strongly doubt that. There are a lot of people who can self-delude. There are a lot of people who are willing to tell you they're deluded more than they are. Well, but what evidence do you have that what I said is not true? What, what evidence do we have the, for the opposite? I mean, it's a strong charge that deserves its own evidence to justify it. How many, well, how many, I don't know what the polling says. How many Republicans say that the election in 2020 was, uh, was uh, illegitimate? I don't know. There are a lot of Republicans who are certainly willing to say that. I, 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 I doubt the sincerity of many of them, but a substantial number more than anybody should be comfortable with willing to concede that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm the I'm notion that everybody dances to this talk. guy's tune to the effect that it takes a lot for you to work yourself into that. There needs to be groundwork to be done to convince yourself of a lie of this magnitude. Can't just overnight say, well, the laptop would have overturned the election. Therefore, we need to suspend the Constitution. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. People have been saying this since October of 2020, before the election. There's been two years of of preparatory spade work here. Well, part of the problem here, and and this is where actually it's it's useful and necessary to indict the, the, you know, these platforms, Twitter in particular, which is this is why when Elon Musk bought it, he started releasing all this information to independent journalists who could either, you know, confirm it or write about it. Um, Our friend Barry Weiss evidently also received a whole bunch of these uh, files and is looking through them. But but part of the problem here is that Trump's message is the sort of hyperbolic uh, expression of something that is true, which is that very left-leaning technology uh, employees at a platform, namely Twitter, uh, but also Facebook, decided something that they did not and should not have the power to decide, which is to suppress a story that a newspaper had published that was accurate. And they had then also, the, they, they didn't question the government's uh, statement. Remember, Joe Biden called this a Russian op. Joe Biden and his campaign and 50 people who'd worked in national security all said, oh, this is very clearly Russian up with no evidence. And that was the justification for suppressing it. Now, you did have the FBI had been briefing these technology companies in the run up to the election about their concerns about disinformation, particularly from foreign sources. So that was not an illegitimate concern. That's a reasonable concern to have in this day and age with the way that these sort of tactics are used and deployed. But that was a very – without any sort of uh, investigation as to whether or not it was true, they they overreacted. They they were overreacting as well to the whole Hillary email situation. They felt like their willingness to report on that story elected Donald Trump, and they were not going to make that mistake again. And they enlisted these tech platforms in that effort. That is something that should concern Americans. You don't have to be a paranoid pro-Trumper to be concerned about that. The problem is the reaction now to the revelation that this, in fact, is what happened in the mainstream media is to chide Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk and say, oh, look at Taibbi. Do, you know, he's he's just doing it 
PR for the richest men in the world. They are not having their accountability moment, the moment that they really do need to have to regain any trust from the American people and not just in sort of conservative media types, but everyone. They have they have betrayed the trust of the American people in their job as as the fifth estate. And we might run the very same risk by over analyzing the degree to which this is a world shaping news story that justifies in in retrospect, five, 10 years down the road, some concerted effort to overturn the Constitution because we're afraid of the, the radioactive potential this story has when it's really just a a, a tale of really uh, not banal, certainly because it's unique, but malfeasance on the part of uh, of government officials and the people they're very close with in Silicon Valley. That's bad. And we should explore that without the fear of the context that it that could accompany it years down the road. Oh, I mean, it, 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 it's horrible what happened here. It, it's horrible in its own terms. I mean, Christine right. gave a, a great summary, but but news organizations shouldn't suppress stories on the presumption that a physical piece of evidence that another news organization says it has in hand that proves X, Y, and Z doesn't exist. And therefore, they, they shouldn't do this, period. It's got nothing to do with why they did it or what they did and what it says about the news media in 2020 or 2022 that they believe that they're that the former once gatekeeper role of media which was to kind of define the lines the boundaries of what was and was not acceptable now goes to their judgment of what is good or bad for the public to know um, including, by the way, reporting on the possibility that the laptop was disinformation, which could be part of any reporting on such things, including saying 51 intelligence officers said that the Russians could have manufactured this laptop, whatever, but still reporting on what's there, and they chose not to. And that's about the media. That's about the crisis in the media and why nobody likes the media anymore including the left in its own way for, for its own reasons. So if that's the case, then the media are going through a long dark night of the soul and they're doing it again because look, Matt Taibbi, I have many problems with Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi has said vile things, you know, very close to the line, if not over the line of anti-Semitism about banks and hedge funds and the 2008 results and he's been really nasty to me so i don't say this with any comfort but to accuse mata ibi who is a kind of radical leftist of being the handmaiden to a billionaire when his career was made as an attacker of billionaires and bankers and anybody who has money is so absurdly preposterous is so out of, you know, it's like accusing me of being a bad Christian. Like, it doesn't compute. He is the definition of a journalist whose entire career was made hostile to billionaires. And that these twerps who work for NBC... I was going to say, who work for massive corporations. (laughs) Yeah, they work for the Comcast (laughs) and the Roberts family of Philadelphia which has vastly more control over anything than Elon Musk has ever had, whether or not on paper they're worth what Elon Musk is worth, is just, it's so unseemly and so repulsive. And then, of course, you have the stuff that, uh, by the way, uh, Christine's not on tomorrow, and uh, 
we're going to have as a debut uh, guest, uh, Noam Bloom of Tablet, who also happens to be my nephew. Noam is one of these people who has discovered the secret sauce of whatever is going on where you have 30 different liberal reporters and liberals weirdly saying exactly the same thing at exactly the same moment in tweets. So we'll get into <laughs> how he figured that out, but like using phrases like what is, what was the Musk phrase? It, it was, was doing PR phrase? for a billionaire. Yeah, yeah. Doing PR for, there are like 30 tweets in which different people on the left say doing PR for a billionaire. So that too, like, okay, fine. You know, you guys want to like destroy any public confidence that anything you do or say is to be taken seriously, you just go right ahead. And then you you see what happens when we have a free press that has literally no sense of responsibility. A, won't be free because you're also trying to make it less free. And B, you know, you're, you know, not only is what you do going to be some version of birdcage liner, there isn't going to be a birdcage and you're not going to be, you're, you're going to be out of a job. So, so I don't know. So congratulations I- to you. I don't know what's particularly revelatory <clears throat> about what uh, uh, Taibi ran with. Um, the The scandal was already well known, was already horrific for all the reasons that we've said here. Um, if anything, I was surprised by re- reading through uh, uh, Taibi's tweets that um, there were so many voices on Twitter that said, hey, what, what you sure we should be doing this? Um, that, that is, that is actually what surprised me. Right. I, well, I think that was that, what was interesting about it to me, I agree with Abe, like it, it didn't, it, it didn't break new news unless you hadn't followed the scandal. Although I think we, people like us probably did follow the whole thing, um, more closely than a lot of others did. But it, the fact that there were just a handful of people, some of whom on their own Twitter feeds had, had spent the last, you know, had spent years calling Republicans terrible things, the idea that they were any sort of objective arbiter of what should and should not be allowed on platforms and what they could and could not suppress was sort of alarming. But yes, there were some people like, you know, we have a First Amendment. Has anybody thought of the First Amendment? They're like, oh, we don't need that. But the, but the absolute sanctimony of their sense of their own power in saving people from seeing something that they believe to be harmful, that conceit, that that I think is what should be celebrated uh, when, when you talk about Elon Elon Musk buying Twitter and cleaning house. He cleaned house that uh, Yoel Roth, who was the head of safety. This is someone who thinks libs of TikTok is a danger to society. Like this is someone whose sense of what is harmful in the American public discourse is completely skewed so far to the left that even a moderate liberal would would be like, really? I mean, I don't think we should be suppressing satire or jokes or sites that just link to public documents. So those folks were running the show there for a very long time. So I feel like the revelation of just how certain they were of their position, even when challenged from within, that was what I thought was helpful to see. It's like, yeah, they really were doing this. There's You can't argue they weren't. Look, it's now, you know, uh, Dr. Johnson said that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. The invocation of the First Amendment is now becoming the last refuge of a scoundrel because look at it both ways. The attack that Janine Pirro and others have now launched on sort of the election's legitimacy is that the First Amendment was suspended and people need to be prosecuted because of the First Amendment. First Amendment does not oblige or require anybody who owns a printing press or right. owns a social media government site control, yes. to print yeah. anything. Government shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. That is the First Amendment. So they say, you know, 
that it was a violation of the First Amendment to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story, which it was not. And then Elon Musk fires people at Twitter, and for three weeks, the people at Twitter and others say that Elon Musk is destroying the First Amendment by firing people at Twitter. Like, you, you all go soak your heads, you clowns. Elon Musk owns Twitter lock, stock, and barrel. He can have two employees. He can have 80,000 employees. He can have 3,500 employees. And he can have people who he believes um, are, are, are propounding or promulgating values and ideas about how Twitter should work that are inimical to his sense of how Twitter should work. That's what he paid 40 or $50 billion for. That's what he paid it for. And he's going to be ruined by it. And he can play in a sandbox until, you know, he has to declare bankruptcy or something like that. The First Amendment is not implicated here. That is not the issue. And, you know, talk about, like, destroying the Constitution. Like, if you start invoking the Constitution in false ways, you're also contributing to a a degrading of the meaning of the Constitution, not like an ex-president saying that the Constitution should be overthrown. (laughs) But... You know that that's that's like a that's like a real thing, but it is shameful in this bizarre water carrying for Twitter having and Facebook having suppressed the legitimate story, which then essentially accepts the idea being promulgated by the conspiratorial right that it was necessary for them to do this, otherwise Trump would have won the twenty twenty election. Is that really where they want to go? They want to go to the ne'er do well son of the of the of the ex president left a laptop somewhere, and it would have changed the results of an entire election if that news story had come out. It wasn't Biden's laptop; it wasn't Jill Biden's laptop. It was his son's laptop. His son, who was a crack addict, who you know did X, Y, and Z terrible things, and did not provide a smoking gun that said that he was his father's, you know financial tool or political tool it's just not there so i i don't know what to say let's take a break and hear from our second sponsor there's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides with this barrage of information it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom that's where Acton unwind comes in just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary, or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Act and unwind an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Abe, a big uh, event uh, in Iran on 
yesterday on Sunday uh, came about when, not sure if it was, word came about that Iran was going to disband what we call its morality police. The uh, um, the the attorney general of Iran, whatever yeah. whatever that may mean, um, had 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 um, sort of hinted at it or suggested it. It, it wasn't a declaration, um, and so 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 part of the the skepticism around the story has to do with the fact that the attorney general doesn't have a say in this matter. It's it's the the morality police are controlled by the police. Um, which is a, a, a itself a separate entity from whatever the attorney general is, uh, is up to. Um, but I think it's a meaningful story, whether or not those who are skeptical of, of its meaning are correct. And, and there are, there are a lot of skeptics out there. And I understand there, the skeptics are saying, look, they're not really going to uh, suspend the, the morality police. This is, this is just a, a, a feint um, uh, to, to sort of try to give, uh, 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 for to create the appearance that they're trying to give the protesters something they want. My opinion here is that, um, in a weird way, that's almost better than if if this was an actual declaration or, or some sort of gesture that could be interpreted as um, a real move in the right direction on the part of this regime that would, in fact, never do anything. It take take a, a sort of humane uh, anti-clerical uh, step on its own because the worst thing that could happen would be for sort of reasonable people to start saying okay look the the regime is is you know they they've seen the light and they they get the picture and you know let's not overstep this now you know you the the, the people have made some gains and uh, we don't want a bloodbath um i i think this is an interesting story because even if all the attorney general statement reflects is that there is internal debate about this question, um, it means there's blood in the water in terms of the what, what the regime is up to, and uh, it's cause for the people in Iran not to lose faith, not to stop fighting. It would be definitely better if it was some sort of a, a not mistake per se, but miscommunication that was overinterpreted by whatever whatever this functionary is and whatever his title is, because then it's you can envision a, 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 a East Berlin scenario like a, a 1989. When is the when are German East Germans going to be able to leave? And this random GDR official goes, I don't know, immediately, maybe. And then everybody freaks out and has no idea what's going on. And the cascade follows from that. Yeah, everybody goes to the train station. You know, so the you know the Russian Revolution began with with Lenin at the Finland station, and it ended with forty thousand East Germans at the train station in Berlin. So, you know, history rhymes sometimes. And in this case, we have another form of the rhyme, which is the idea which. Uh, Abe, uh, you you mentioned uh, our piece in November by Ray Takea on the uh, in, in the November issue on the why this revolt in Iran is different and why it has echoes of the of the first Iranian revolution in 1978-79. I'm reminded of Gorbachev, right? So I'm reminded because Gorbachev had the idea that he could let people let off a little steam, right? Uh, they needed to do something. In that case, it wasn't that there were protests against the legitimacy of the country, but that 
the economic system in Russia was foundering and that we were exploding and he needed to do something. So he needed to liberalize a little bit. He needed to open a little bit, right? Glasnost literally meant opening, like open a little bit, let people express themselves a little more so that they could, you know, like turn on this economic spigot without disrupting the regime. And of course the regime was so corrupted that it was basically five or six years from the from the from the beginning of glasnost to the complete collapse of of the soviet union as a nation the soviet empire and and what what happened since and so, so this is and this actually yeah. gets because there's a lot of conflation about like oh there's glasnost happened and perestroika happened and then glasnost happened and then the, the regime came down it was actually and it's a little more complicated than that but glasnost played a, a, a spectacular role in this in allowing the baltic states to explore and examine and open documents around the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which exposed the degree to which yeah. the Soviet Union as it presently existed was a Nazi conspiracy, which yeah. undermined the entire legitimacy of the regime and therefore paved the right. way for the dissolution of the regime by legal means. Um, right. But so, and but I'm the just exploration saying, I, of the formation yeah. of the Islamic Republic in documentation um, would be profound. Right. But I just think Abe's point here, which is that there's blood in the water or you have a little crack in the totalitarian door and we just don't know how you know how termite infested the foundations are and so and what's more the fact that it may look like a ruse or a feint or a false thing will enrage the very people whom they are attempting to appease a little bit the fact that they feel which is Takea's point in his piece the fact that they feel the need to appease the demonstrators is a sign of really startling weakness. Although Takei makes the point that Iran has always been different from other totalitarian countries in that it has always kept the, it has allowed people in within its borders to make certain choices that other totalitarian countries don't allow them to. In other words, there are elections, there are municipal elections, local elections, and there is free choice. It's just that the state, picks the candidates effectively says these two or these three candidates can run for this office because they do not challenge in any way shape or form the fundamental precepts of the islamic republic but people get a little bit of a taste of self-expression and political self-expression something else is going on here which is this notion that the regime that the country that they live in the regime that is is barbaric and is a barbarism and is treating them like a barbarism and not like a you know noble moral islamic you know country that is hewing to islamic ideals and that they will no longer tolerate it and giving them a little bit of a taste as opposed to slamming the brakes on them uh they're again he says this too in two possible ways one of which is they don't want to slam the brakes because they do not have confidence that the military will fire on the protesters. And that is the famous end of all authoritarian regimes is when the forces, I mean, if there are ends, it's when the forces that need to do the cracking down, drop their guns or say, I, I, you're asking me to shoot my mother and I'm not going to shoot my mother. Like that. I mean, there's a Romania scenario. There's a Tiananmen scenario. The Romania right. well, scenario Romania is works. Blood, Romania a bloodbath, but it worked. Yeah, and then there's a bloodbath, yeah. and it doesn't work. 
So I don't know. I'm just saying like, it's a very, it's a very interesting and pregnant moment. And, and I think it is important what you said, Abe, that even if it is a transparently cynical faint, that also has deep meaning. I mean, I don't think we can be, we should express undue optimism that the end, you know, that the end is nigh for, you know, one of the world's worst regimes, maybe the worst continuing regime. Well, maybe China is the worst continuing. I mean, China and Iran bid fair to be the worst continuing regime or the most dangerous continuing regime, you know, on the planet Earth. But, you know, it's 43 years since the revolution uh, or almost 44 years since the revolution. And, you know, we are, it would be a blessing to see it, (laughs) to see it, you know, go into the midst of history. But I think that's, you know, we should, we should be skeptical that that's the way yeah but um, you know another bit of good news here is that that sentiment that you just expressed is now pretty thoroughly bipartisan uh the whole all the talk of of rehabilitating the mullahs and getting into a nuclear deal um that's pretty dead this is the only way that we get a nuclear deal uh, iran will achieve fissionable capacity in the next year two years in the absence of a regime collapse or intervention, military intervention. We also have no, by the way, we have no reason to believe that a follow-on regime wouldn't go nowhere. Of course not. No. Anyway. Anyway, but whatever. No, but you, it is a very, you know, it's like uh, history is not mocked. Like things, everyone who always wants to do a straight line projection, imagine that we had, stayed in the nuclear and we hadn't changed the nuclear deal or we hadn't done, you know, we hadn't imposed the sanctions of 2017 or we hadn't done this and we hadn't done that. Would Iran be any further from nukes? I doubt it. Would it have been more um, prosperous because it wouldn't have had the sanctions? Probably. Would the population have, have become restive in the same way? Probably not. Like you don't know. Things have all sorts of ancillary effects, which getting back to the Trump point, like we don't know what the effect is of an ex-president and current remaining future head of the party, which itself is a, is a, is a new thing in the modern era to have an ex-president who remains at the top of the party, right. And doesn't go into retirement. We don't know what the effect is of him saying the constitution should be overthrown for my sake. Uh, But it was better when we didn't have the question being raised and, the results of it are unknowable, but they can't be good. I mean, the only way they could be good is if they somehow hastened, you know, his departure from the, from the, from history like that, that would, in my view, that would be an unalloyed good, but it's doubtful that that's the result of this, right? Because there are also too many people among people on his side that, by the way, the numbers, I should say, because I did look it up, the numbers of people who uh, 70% of Republicans, as of the end of September, continue to hold the belief, uh, Republicans, that Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 presidential election legitimately. 70% of Republicans tell posters. 30% of the public overall, which is, by the way, that gap is why... Republicans will never win an election again with Trump as the titular head of the party. Because there's a 40-point spread between Republicans who believe this and the rest of the country. And, of course, if that means independents don't believe it, and goodbye. So, but that's a big number. 
Republicans make up, I don't know, 29% of the electorate, that 70% of them believe, you know, none of us is a math head, so I'm not going to suggest that we figure out what 70% of 29% is, but it's not good. It's a lot of people, tens of millions of people who believe this and are, you know, I don't know what they're willing to do. They're not willing to go into the streets. Only only six or 700 people were at the Capitol. It's not like there were tens of thousands of people storming the Capitol. But you could see tens of thousands of people storming the Capitol 10 years from now, particularly if the mythos that the demonstrators were, you know, were, were being so harshly treated, as Trump said on Friday, and it was being so unfair and everybody should raise money for them, for these people who, you know, went into our Capitol and destroyed it and sought to, you know, some of them were looking with blood in their eyes for Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. It's really great that the ex-president is doing that also. We'll be back tomorrow with Noam Bloom. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Pahortz. Keep the candle burning.